0: All right, now let's look at that prayer in Colossians chapter 1. The prayer we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, we'll look at one more time, and today I want to read the whole thing, starting in verse 3 on to verse 14, how Paul prays for this Colossian church. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. ...because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world is bearing fruit and growing... ...as it does also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit... giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, my plan for this week was just to focus our attention on verses 12 to 14. But if you look at verse 12, I realized, as you probably can just by looking at it, That means we're picking up in the middle of a sentence. Starting in verse 12 means we're picking up in the middle of a sentence. In fact, in the original Greek, which this letter was written in originally, verses 9 to 12 are one long sentence. So rather than beginning really at the end of a sentence in Paul's thought, I want to back up a few verses, look at verses 9 to 12, and try to chart the flow in Paul's prayer here. Let's chart the flow. That's the first thing we need to do. The flow of thought in Paul's prayer. Now, most of us haven't diagrammed a sentence since the sixth grade. Some of you have gladly forgotten that you ever did. (sighs) We, for the most part, in our adult American culture, don't ever need to do such analysis of language and grammar. For one, a lot of the sentences we read are, are not long, right? They're short. The newspaper writes short sentences. The, the web page writes usually short sentences. We want to communicate accurately and clearly, and so well done. Yeah, don't write in long sentences. But the Bible is written to us sometimes in long sentences. And if it's given to us in long sentences, sometimes much as we may not like to at first, we sometimes should exercise some brain cells to try to figure out what it's saying and how it flows, what the logic is. The fact is, God has revealed himself in grammar. You may hate that. Some of you wish he revealed himself in math, and he hasn't, not like he has in his word. He's revealed revealed himself to us here in sentences, and I want to try to get us to think through what Paul's saying. Now, what I'm going to show you isn't classic diagramming like you may have remembered from sixth grade, but here's an attempt at charting the flow of Paul's thought from verses 9 to 12. So what you see up here on the screen are little phrases from verse 9 to verse 12, and kind of... Without the the lines, without the connections that you used to use perhaps in 6th grade and diagramming sentences, we want to try to see what Paul's doing here. So this is what he asks. He asks, verse 9, that you may be filled with knowledge. And then verse 10 gives us a so that. He tells us why he wants them to be filled with knowledge. So that they would walk worthy. Now, you notice walk worthy is the, the thing indented to the right the most. It's central to what Paul's saying here. We'll come back to that. He says, be filled with the knowledge of God so that you would walk worthy. And then it's not in our English translations, but it's implied, here's how. The rest of what he's going to say is essentially, here's how you walk worthy. Here's what I mean about walking worthy. And then he gives us five, hold on to your grammar hat, five participles. Participles in the English are ING words. They're things you do that amplify something you've already done, in a sense. So if I said, I was in a fight last night, punching a man in the face repeatedly. Punching would be the participle there, right? It's describing the fight. I wasn't in a fight last night, by the way. But if I said, I cooked my wife a a meal... Really cooking it up in the kitchen. Now that would be as false as me getting in a fight last night. I didn't cook my wife a meal. But cooking there is the point. The cooking is a participle describing what I'm doing, okay? So you make a meal. Cooking it in the kitchen, cooking it, describes what you were doing in making that meal. So Paul says, here's how you walk worthy, pleasing to him. I want you to walk worthy, pleasing to him in verse 10. Second participle, bearing fruit. See, I-N-G words. Bearing fruit in every good work. Then in verse 10, increasing in the knowledge of God. And then when you get to verse 11, most translations don't have a participle here, but it is in the original. It's very clear. It's just maybe they got tired of all the I-N-G words right in a row, and maybe that's why the translators left it out, but it's clearly a participle. It's being strengthened, ongoing. It's part of the expression of how you walk worthy. Being strengthened with all power. And then kind of a parenthetical phrase, unto all endurance and patience with joy. Back to the last participle, giving thanks. Now, giving thanks is where I intended to start this message. But you see, it's at the end of this train, this grammar train, this flow of thought here. There is a flow of thought going on. It's not just a random list of good things, but Paul is making logical connections between the good things that he's praying for in the Colossian church. And their thankfulness is connected to the things before. You see, some commentators suggest that these participles build off one another. They not only reflect how you walk worthy, so that walk worthy really is the center of what we're looking at here on the screen, right? You can see that. Filled with knowledge, so that you would walk worthy, and then kind of work it back out. Here's how with those five different ING words. Walk worthy is the key, but some commentators suggest that each of these I-N-G words build off one another. That we could take arrows and draw arrows from the one below to the ones above. One participle is how you do the ones before. Now let me just get specific in case you, you just fell asleep from the overuse of the word participles and the thought of diagramming. The point is just that these things feed into each other. So, pleasing Him, you see that on the screen, is how you walk worthy. Bearing fruit is how you please God. Increasing in the knowledge of God is no small part of how you bear fruit. It's not just fruit that we're after, like they're good works, but you don't have to know much about the Bible. What energizes that good fruit is knowledge of God. What makes it real good fruit is a connection with knowledge of God. There needs to be an increase in the knowledge of God so that we bear fruit. And where do we get that knowledge from? Well, that means supernatural Holy Spirit power is needed to keep increasing in the knowledge of God. You see how each one feeds into the one before? You need power to keep growing in a knowledge of God's word. You need the Holy Spirit's power to want to read and feed on God's word. And then this one we're focusing on this week, giving thanks. Verse 12, it's a way in which we're strengthened. Giving thanks isn't just right, and that's why you do it. It's a means by which you get strength. You give thanks to God in order for your joy to flourish, in order for endurance to be real and lasting. It's not just that it's a command. It's not just that giving thanks is an ought. Giving thanks feeds back into everything before it. Giving thanks is the means by which a million other good things are fueled. Giving thanks fuels Strength, endurance, patience, and joy. We getting that? Remember what we saw in the last couple of weeks about how Paul gives thanks? He's not just talking to us about general thankfulness. Like Christians are always polite. Christians always have good manners. They say thank you. It doesn't just mean General thankfulness, but spiritual thankfulness, prayerful thankfulness to God, and specifically for his gifts of grace and gospel fruit in our lives. It's not just quick things. It's not just a quick acknowledgement of what God has done. Thank you for forgiveness and moving on. But what we said last week is that when Paul gets to a redemptive theme, one redemptive word, it turns into a tornado of description. He starts throwing words out, right? A tornado. One place, pulls things up, spits them out. That's what Paul's doing when he comes to forgiveness. It's not enough to just say forgiveness. He describes it 10, 12 ways. It's a tornado of praise as he circles about the same kind of things in a variety of ways. And that's what fuels thankfulness. Sorry, that's the kind of thankfulness that fuels strength and endurance and patience and joy. It's a thoughtful kind of thankfulness. It's a meditative kind of thankfulness. It's an energetic, ruminating kind of thankfulness about salvation. Not just general, not just unspoken, not just short and occasional. We need descriptive, prolonged, frequent thanksgiving for the gospel in order to be strengthened, in order to have power, in order to grow in the knowledge of God and to continue in the faith. So that so far covers why we need to be thankful. In thankfulness, God is blessing us and doing a million other things. Now, what do we need to be thankful for? Giving thanks for what? That's verses 12 to 14, and here Paul lists several different results that come from Jesus' life and his work 2,000 years ago on this earth. The question is, what does Jesus' life and death mean for those who see it, receive it, believe it embrace it and make it their own what changes what does he do what does he give he gives us six things here in Colossians 1 that Paul lists the first is that we're qualified through Jesus we are being qualified he says in verse 12 Jesus has qualified us now we all know what it means to be qualified for something to to be qualified for a new job it's a good thing To be qualified for a new raise, a new promotion, a great thing. To be qualified to be accepted by such a college, good thing. We also know what it means to be unqualified for something, to not make it, to be rejected from the job, or to be denied the promotion because we don't have enough qualifications. Now, a good company has high standards, and a good college is hard to get into. How much more the perfectly righteous king of the universe? Is he just lax? Is he just not picky? Who's qualified to receive any of his blessings? What does Paul mean? We're qualified. Who's qualified to get anything from him? Life, breath, food, enjoyment, intimacy, beautiful sunsets. Who's qualified to call on him? You know, as a pastor, sometimes at family events, everyone expects that I'm the one who's going to pray. You know, they all look to me and, all right, pray for the food, pastor. You know, like I'm the only one that's qualified. Of course, we're not. I'm not. We're all qualified. But think about it. Who's qualified really to call on God? Who's really qualified to to dial up the prayer phone? Who's really qualified to praise him, to describe to him who he is and how great he is? Who's qualified to be his child? Who's qualified to enter into his presence, in the glory of his presence in heaven forever and ever? Well, we get a little hint of who's qualified in Psalm 24. Psalm 24, David asks the question, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Questions really about the presence of God. Who has a right to go into God's presence? Who has a right to go before him and spend time with him? His answer? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So I think many of us would read this perhaps in Monday morning's personal Bible reading. Who will ascend the hill of the Lord? I want to, Lord. I want to be in your presence. What do I need to do? Clean hands. Okay, I'm going to really work hard on clean hands today. Pure heart. Okay, I'll I'll stay pure. I'll try to stay pure all day today. No deceit. No falsehood. Notice this doesn't say he who's kind of trying or he who occasionally remembers to not lie or he who has somewhat of a pure heart. It says he who has a pure heart is the one who can come before the presence of God. He who doesn't have any falsehood. He who doesn't have any deceit, which isn't any of us. We've all lied. None of us have pure hearts. And that's why Psalm 24 is really about the Messiah, Jesus. That's how it ends. Handel, Handel's Messiah. Handel knew this when he wrote his Messiah because he talked about these two verses at the end of Psalm 24 in a way that really is about Jesus. These verses say, Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He's the king of glory. Handel rightly saw that this is talking about Jesus. The psalm is about Jesus. Jesus is the only one with a a pure heart and with clean hands and no lying on his lips. He's the only one. He's the only one who has a right to go into the presence of God and to bring a perfect sacrifice into that presence of God. He alone was qualified but by his entering and through his sacrifice, we can enter with him. Have you ever gotten into a good place because you know someone? Have you ever gotten backstage at a good concert because you know someone? Chances are, it doesn't, it's not that you know the band. right? You know someone who knows the band. Jesus gets us in. It's because of who we know. Colossians 1.12, it says he qualified us, not we're just qualified, not we have qualified ourselves, but he is the one who qualified us. What did he qualify us for? The second thing, inheritance. Verse 12, we have an inheritance. We're heirs with Jesus. Jesus who's God's perfect, righteous, eternal son. We are heirs with him. We're brothers and sisters with him. Christian, he has made us sons and daughters. And he had to make us sons and daughters. You might think that in some general sense, and this would be true, in some general sense, we're all God's children. But in scripture, more than not, talking about him as father and we as children is reserved for those whom God has done something special in, like you see in Galatians 4. Listen to this. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Our adoption is not a given. It's not automatic. Jesus had to redeem us And now that we're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit indwells Christians' hearts, and the spirit whispers, as it were, to their hearts, Abba, Father. He lets us know that we're his. He tells us, gives us assurance that we're children. No longer slaves, but sons and daughters. And if we're sons, then we're heirs. Heirs. Heirs inheriting what, what is God's. That wasn't always the case. You did not know God, Paul says. You were enslaved to those things that by nature were not God's. But now you've come to know God. Or rather be known by him. You hear how familial and warm that is? You know him. He knows you. The point really isn't what we inherit. Although you could look at Matthew 5 and see there that we inherit the earth. Just that. Whole earth. Earth. You getting that? Like everything. We inherit the earth. If it's God's, then it's ours. That's really the point. The point of the adoption language and the inheritance language is that if we're in his family, we now have full rights and privileges. It's not about what we get. It's about who we are. But we have all that he has. Like the prodigal's father, Luke 15. Remember, he comes back home, and what does the father say? Son, all I have is yours we have an inheritance from the father through jesus that's that amazing and get this ephesians 1 not only tells us the spirit is in our hearts to give us assurance and remind us of our adoption but ephesians 1 tells us that the holy spirit is a down payment for our inheritance it's a pledge of the inheritance that's to come That right there ought to be enough, enough biblical clarity to keep Christians from ever wondering whether they can lose their salvation. If true Christians are given the Holy Spirit as a down payment, I think that means that that's for good, right? It doesn't seem like he would give a down payment, take a down payment. Give it back, but don't mess up, take it back. No, the whole point is that he gives the Holy Spirit as as proof that he's going to, Cash in for us and with us someday. We have an inheritance. Third, we have sainthood. Nothing less than sainthood. He used that word saint in verse 1. He uses it again in verse 12. Remember, if you were here when we talked about verse 1, a saint is one who is holy. And yet, every Christian's a saint. Every Christian, according to Scripture, Present tense, is a saint. True Christians are saints even when they're at their worst. Isn't that amazing? They're no less a saint when they do wrong as when they do good. That's not how we talk about saints. Oh, he's a real saint. She's a real saint. Today, that's how we talk about it, based on someone's sacrifice and and endurance and patience and love and commitment and discipline. We really mean super saints. The Bible calls every Christian saintly. And they're no less a saint in their moments of worse sin and weakness. They're called saints. They're called holy. They're declared to be holy based on someone else's holiness. There are really two options. Everyone agrees that there's this concept in Scripture where God declares Righteous. The word that's used oftentimes in the Bible, Romans 4 be one example, is justification. It's a judicial bench kind of word. It's a judicial declaration. Justification means to declare righteous. Two approaches. One is that God declares righteous what is actually righteous in and of itself. It has become righteous, therefore he calls it righteous. Romans 4, 5 tells us that that's not right. Romans 4, 5 says God declares righteous. He justifies the ungodly. He declares righteous the ungodly. The judge from his judicial bench knows the guilt and the condemnation he sees. Every single act of disobedience. And yet he makes a declaration as he hits his gavel down. And he says, righteous. And he says, righteous over that which is not righteous. Because someone else was righteous for us. You see, we'd never be righteous enough for God to judicially call us righteous. We would never earn it enough. We'd never be righteous enough. It isn't that Jesus you know, says, work hard, try to be righteous, and I'll fill in the gaps. He's a savior, not a helper. So in this judicial picture, get this. Christian, if you trust in Jesus' blood and righteousness alone, the jury has already met. The jury has already given its verdict. They have said, righteous. They have said, he's free. And the jury is adjourned. It doesn't meet again. Praise God indeed. A fourth way Paul describes this glorious gift of grace is with these two words a realm transfer. Verse 13, there's a realm transfer. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his son. Now this word transferred in ancient literature is often used for when a king would take over a whole population of people. So a a conquering king would defeat a nation and then he would take a section of that nation and he would pull them from their land and then he would put them in his own land. And usually what he would do is not put them in one spot where they can kind of be a ghetto to themselves and propagate their own culture, keep their identity, but he spreads them out. He spreads them out in the land and they become, within a generation or two, one of those people. They lose their identity. It's the same word used here for how God has Worked in our lives to deliver us from a domain, a country, a people, a culture of darkness. So that we do things that we wish we wouldn't do. There's a bent toward evil in all of us. Whatever else Defines people culturally and ethnically and geographically in this world, however diverse that is, we all have one thing in common. We were all born in the domain of darkness. We all have that, you could say, cultural trait. We have that bent. We have that identity. And we share that behavior, even if we share it in different ways or to different degrees. We love darkness even if we love that darkness by trumping up fake light, by wandering through the darkness saying, I see just fine. <laughs> I see it all. We're looking for answers in this domain of darkness. And you know what? Here's what we need. Our only hope is that the conquering king of this world would intrude and he would redeemingly conquer our souls and pull us from the domain of darkness and transfer us to his kingdom. I want you to think of Israel's beginnings. Back in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 16. This is what it says about Israel and its beginning. Because, you know, throughout the Old Testament, God had a people for himself. He showed them his love and he set his promises upon them. And yet, it began with just some guy. He was wealthy, turned out to be pretty faithful, but it was just a guy. God began a nation out of nothing, you could say. So here's how it's described in a really picturesque way in Ezekiel 16. It's like a birth. As for your birth as a nation, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut. Nor were you washed with water to cleanse you. No, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. You were born, but no one was there to care for you. No eye pitied you to do any of the things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out in an open field. Do you get in this graphic picture? Cord attached, wet, cold, newborn baby, alone in an open field. For you were aboard on that day that you were born. And when I passed by you, I saw you wallowing in your blood. I said to you in your blood, Live! I said to you in your blood, Live! I made you flourish like a plant of the field. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you, and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you. I adorned you. God initiates. God cleanses. God makes great. Our only hope is that the redeeming conqueror would come and transfer us to his kingdom it's put similarly in Ephesians chapter 2 about our own beginning. Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in, once you, in which you once walked following the course of this world. Here's the domain of darkness. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work and the sons of disobedience, you lived in the passions of your flesh, you carried out the desires of your heart, you're very much alive and yet Spiritually, you're dead. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. There's a good definition of grace. He came and resurrected spiritually dead people. We have a domain that's a heavenly one even though we're not there yet. What a domain it is. So Colossians 3 will go on to say, set your mind on things above where Christ is. He's there. Philippians 3 will tell us that we have a citizenship that's in heaven. Our citizenship's there even though we're not yet. But that's our identity. And we're being shaped into that identity more and more by his grace. There's a realm transfer Fifth, there's redemption. Redemption. Verse 14 is that word redemption, which, I don't know what it might mean to you, but in the Bible, it's rooted in the story of the Exodus, the book of Exodus. Second book of the Bible, where the Israelites were rescued from the bondage and slavery that was in Egypt. Remember the story of the Passover, where a blood, the blood of a, a perfect, innocent lamb would be shed and that blood would be put on the doorposts of the house so that when it says the angel of death comes by, he would pass over your house and not take your firstborn son like he did with the others. The Israelites still had sin. They, they might be slightly better than the Egyptians in a number of ways, but they still needed sacrifice. They still needed a substitute, death. And they expressed Symbolized, pictured their faith by putting the blood of that sacrifice on the doorposts of their home. In the New Testament, Jesus, in several places, is the true Passover. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So God's judgment now has passed over the doorposts of our hearts. Christ has taken the judgment for us. There's redemption now. That's what this word redemption signifies. God's punishment being passed over in that whole story of being released from freedom, being set free from tyranny. And we've been set free from the tyranny, not of Egypt, not from the slavery of working too long, but we have been set free from the bondage of Satan and sin and our own sin, our own judgment. Ephesians 1 describes that redemption that's through his blood like this. It says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. In light of the Passover, you can see why Paul puts redemption next to his blood. We've been redeemed not through the the Passover lamb of the old covenant, We've been redeemed by thee, capital P, Passover lamb. It means now the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. You see again Paul doing that that gospel tornado tornado of description tornado of praise he comes to the word redemption and he can't help but say it's through his blood it means the forgiveness of sins it's according to his grace rich grace which he lavished upon us we need more lavish descriptions of his lavish grace don't forget what we've been talking about that's the means by which we grow being thankful, like Paul's thankful here is part of the means by which we're strengthened and we endure and we grow in joy and knowledge of the Lord. And there's one more theme, forgiveness. He says we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In other words, it's the same thing. God's forgiveness is described to us in Scripture in wonderfully picturesque terms. Remember, we've already seen that Picturesque, if not grotesque, description of our lostness in Ezekiel 16. Who were you? You think you were something? I came to you. You were wiggling in your blood. There was no one there to care for you. Not spiritually speaking. Oh, you may have a wife. You might have kids. You might have parents. But what do we have spiritually to lift us up to heaven? We were born naked and helpless. He came to us. Remember that graphic description of zombies, living dead, walking about life, doing as we please, but really, we're blind, we're darkened. We're really following Satan and sin, no matter how relatively good we are. Remember that glorious picture of that realm transfer, that we were born into a domain, a culture, a behavior, identity of darkness. But the redeeming, conquering king has picked us up and scooped us into the right country, a spiritual country, into heavenly citizenship. Well, forgiveness is described to us in similar, wonderfully picturesque ways. Let me give you some examples. Like Isaiah 43, which says, I am him who blots out your transgressions. If you're a Christian, you're used to that language, but just get that. Sin? Blot. Sin. Blot. Sin. Blot. He covers it up. It's gone. He blots out every transgression. And he does it for his own sake, which means it rests on him, which means it's from him. It's rooted in himself, not you, not your performance. He does it for his own sake. He will not remember your sins. Like it says in Isaiah 38, that he has cast all of our sins behind his back. He doesn't see him anymore. throws him back there and he keeps going. Psalm 103 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. In our increasingly global age, we know what happens on the other side of the world, right? We know it almost instantly, thanks to the internet. But think of this in B.C. times. Think of this language. Separating our sins from us like the East is from the West. For them, you can understand how glorious this was. you got something against me, but you live in China? (laughs) Fine. What are you going to do? I don't care. It's the other side of the world. Again, in our increasingly global age, it might matter. They can put it on the Internet. They can come and get you, I guess. But, But in those days, you can imagine the other side of the planet, what? He put him there? Well, I won't see him again. Neither will anyone else. Or in Micah 7, Micah asks, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Even in our amazingly scientific age, there are still parts of the sea that no man has been down to. God, it says, in a picturesque way, puts our sins down there. Again, don't forget the earlier point about thankfulness in its key place in the Christian life that growing in thankfulness is part of the means by which we keep growing in so many other things. That means, in part, that we can't forget what we've been saved from. Notice how Paul, in giving glorious gospel descriptions to us, is very obvious about what we're saved from. Right? Right? He doesn't just say we go to heaven. Redemption by very nature means that there's a rescue that needed to happen. It implies scripturally that there's a sin problem that needs addressing. We know that sin problem is our own. We've been been redeemed by, by God through Jesus' blood from ourselves in the judgment that's to come. Paul's reminding us very clearly that the grace and Gifts that come through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are addressing a problem. And if we forget that problem, if we forget the need, Christians, if we forget these things, we will subtly begin to think that perhaps He loved us because we were good enough, because we don't do things we used to do. Jesus is not a new start. Christianity is not turning over a new leaf. Christianity is not getting back on track. Christianity is coming to the end of yourself. Christianity is giving up on all self-ability, savingly speaking. What we've seen this morning is the bad news is far worse than any other description that's available out there. The bad news, according to Scripture, is worse than psychology would tell you or sociology would tell you or the educational experts would tell you or the politicians would tell you, even when they're frustrated about how bad the problem is and how there lacks a solution. The Bible tells us the problem is far worse than anything you've heard out there. It's worse than you know, but the good news is far, far worse better than anything you've heard and anything you can imagine. He just blots it out. He just transfers you. He just frees you. He just does it. He qualifies you himself. No religion talks like this. Not even parts of Christianity, parts of so-called Christianity. But biblical Christianity says that this is everything? This must be our mainstay. This must be our meat and potatoes. Salvation results, yes, in a changed life, but no amount of changed life can ever remove sin. Yes, salvation comes through faith, believing, trust, and those are good things, but it's not our faith that garnishes salvation, that earns anything with God. Let me close with a quote from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor... 50 years or more ago in London? Maybe just bow with me. This is the last thing we'll do. Bow and concentrate on these glorious words and make these, as you hear them, an expression of prayer to God. He says, The gospel in the first instance does not ask us to do anything. It's primarily an announcement of what God has done for us. The work of the devil is to twist it. To pervert it, to prevent us from seeing it, to tell us that the message of Christianity is a call to us to do something to put ourselves right, to put the world right, to stop this, to stop that. But the very first principle of Christianity denies that completely. It's the exact opposite. Christianity is an announcement in a proclamation of what God has done, yet people still persist in thinking that Christianity is a call to them to do something. And that is why they do not sing. That is why they do not praise God. That is why their hearts are not on fire and full of rejoicing. It's because they think Christianity is a code of ethics, a way of life. Way of living. No, says Paul. He has qualified us. He has done it all.